Hello, everybody. Welcome, welcome. Today we're doing a special podcast episode with Carrie Honey. Hello, Carrie. Welcome. Hi, Susan. It's very nice to meet you. Very nice to meet you too. And I was looking at your work and it seems like you work with archetypes and dream symbolism and interpretation and tarot. And I saw some I Ching there. And then you have a new book coming out called Decoding the Night Sky, which is about Babylonian astrology. So you have a really rich background. <laughs> yeah, I do a lot of archetype and symbol exploration, which is why, you know, I kind of... Um look at all the Eastern Western archetypes and oracles and dreams. I've been working with dreams for like a long time, decades, but um, I've done some translations of the I Ching, the Tao Te Ching. I've written about dreams, but yeah, my newest book is, it looks at Babylonian astrology. It's a lot older. It goes back to 2,500 BC, as opposed to the 500 AD or whenever the Greeks were kind of homogenizing it. So it has a it's a, it's much richer in its original meaning, the different signs, and uh, and also it um, it explores some of the uh, ideas that there's some glyphs that we find in Gobekli Tepe and Ratnagiri that go back ten thousand to ten thousand BC. So um, you know it's kind of yeah it was just it was a really I love writing things that are just you know it kind of uh, takes on its own life, and uh, it was really fun to put together. Oh, I bet. I bet. So with these symbols in, in the Babylonian astrology, is it um, the 12 signs like we know it, or is it more than that? Are they different? Well, um, the interesting thing about going all the way back to Babylonian astrology, you know, and I don't know for people who don't understand astrology, the planets move in an elliptic in a, in a band and in the backdrop of the stars behind that band is what became the constellations, even though we see stars everywhere. And if you, you know, you can see when you're, when you really get into Babylonian astrology, like the quadrant that goes from Capricorn, Aquarius, Pisces was called the great sea. And, you know, some of the stories of the flood and a whale, you know, swallowing a man, or you can just see so many of the, our ancient myths and stories are actually coming from, you know, uh, from ancient astrology, from what was happening in, in their eyes in the heavens. And so when you look at the 12 signs, they're a little bit different. I mean, they, you can see how they evolved like into Aries, like began with like the farm worker. And, you know, there's some really fun uh, interaction with Inanna and plowing her field. And it was, it's much more, um, it's almost erotic, <laughs> but, wow. you know, but you get the sense of Aries, you know, uh, being, you know, really kind of, uh, an aggressive male archetype, but, but when you get to someone, something like Libra, it wasn't the scales, it was called ravenous dogs. And, you know, when you kind of go back through the story of, of, of that, you get a sense of, where we get the, the word, uh, the hair of the dog, you know, like, <laughs> and I hate, you know, I mean, Libras love uh, harmony in the environment. And sometimes they, you know, when things are in discord or whatever, sometimes they can, you know, get into substances to kind of feel better, or, you know, so there's kind of some, there's some, each sign is a little bit different, um, but you can see how the roots of it, you know, blossomed into what we know as more of like a Western astrology. Um, so yeah, it's, it's a bit different. 
Oh, that's fascinating. That's yeah, really fascinating. Yeah. And so with um, kind of in the same area, but with these archetypes, you know, um, do those also carry over? Because I think there are traditional archetypes. This is something that I've been, you know, kind of noodling with personally, you know, the mother, the father, mm -hmm. the infant, the, you know, um, the security provider in some cir circumstances. So do you feel that a lot of the same archetypal elements were alive and working in the population back then in the same yes. way as they are now? Mm -hmm. Yeah, because I mean, if you look back to like um, Egyptian mythology and Isis and Horus, her son, who was a king even in, in his in his egg or, you know, some, you know, you can start to see some of the Mary and Jesus and which came kind of later and you see kind of, um, you know, so the, so then like the, the virgin that that's Virgo or the mother that becomes kind of fifth house, you know, stuff in astrology. Um, you, you definitely, you know, and, and the thing, like when I do, Yijing interpretation versus like tarot interpretation, that's like East versus West. And, mm -hmm. you know, they have real similar archetypes, except the Yijing is based more on nature, natural processes as they, as the, as the universe moves towards change. And then in the West, it's more of this dramatic story that fits more to what you're talking about. You know, the different characters, the Empress, and, you know, you get more of those are the Western archetypes. That's kind of what we've uh, made out of this hero's journey um, in, in, in kind of a tar tarot reading where like the Yijing would feel more like working with a Zen master. <laughs> mm, yeah. You know, but yeah, you know, I mean, because I've done so much work in comparative mythology, religion, you know, I've seen a lot of, um, you know, like, for example, the, I don't know if you're familiar with the, uh, the ancient Sumerian work, the Epic of Gilgamesh. Have you ever read any of that? It's, it's like tickling my brain somehow, like I've heard of it before, but yeah, so, um, okay. so like in the, in the Epic of Gilgamesh, you can see a lot of the stories. And of course, this, this goes back, you know, 2000 BC, way before um, we, we think the Bible was put together or whatever, but there's a flood story in there. There's a story that resembles the Tower of Babel. And, you know, so if you kind of go back through all of our ancient ideas, all around the world, you start to get, um, you start to see the roots and also the similarities. Because in my opinion, because astrology was so prominent prior to, you know, um, let's say illiterate, the illiterate uh, spoken word, sharing, writing, whatever, I feel like that may, may be why some of our myths are so similar around the world, like the flood story or because they're, you know, that, that totally comes out of some of the writings about what was happening in the heavens. Mm. Oh, that's, I love that parallel because that's, a, that's a thing too, that, that has just really kind of come up as a stream of consciousness kind of thought that we have so many similar stories all around the world. And it's just the storyteller who has kind of bent in a way or, or uh -huh. reorganized the story in a way that kind of fits the culture or the time that they're living in. Right. Or even politically to yeah. kind of control, control people with the narrative. 
you know, yeah, the, the, the ideas, in fact, I would say all of the books that I've written, a lot of the work that I do, and I also compose music and I'm meshing different like uh, vibes from East to West or everything I do is like really to transcend boundaries. And so like one of the books I wrote, The Mythology of Sleep, which looks at mythology around the world for dream interpretation, because there's a lot of symbolism that, you know, that you learn about, you know, how to interpret dreams from, from going through kind of the hero's journey. Um, through these myths and through dreams, but you see that they, um, you know, I mean, my, my, I, I think the big takeaway is that we're all telling the same story. Like we're not so different, you know, Mm -hmm. it doesn't matter if you're looking at Nordic mythology or, you know, ancient Chinese, or, you know, there's a definitely, so I kind of like, I know, I know today because of the internet and social media, a lot of those boundaries have come down. And I see a lot of that with astrological significance in, you know, planets moving through Pisces and, um, you know, the melting pot and sort of allowing religion to have a different, or let's say spirituality, allowing spirituality to rise out of um, the boundaries of religion that we held in the past. You know, does that make sense? Totally, totally. Because and, and you're also, because it, it seems like we have a very similar backdrop for our work. And um, you also work with like nature symbolism and interpreting signs kind of in a very natural and flowing way as well too, right? Right. And that, you know, it comes from a lot of the work that I've done in Taoism and translating some of the ancient Chinese ideas, which are just absolutely brilliant. And you get a sense then of of Taoism being the ability to go with the flow, the ability to hover at the doorway of perception and observe and not, you know, get pulled in. And and so, yeah, like as I'm painting my interpretations, whether it's tarot or Yijing or astrology or whatever, I'm always working with the concept that for billions of years, nature has been building something better. And we showed up kind of seconds to go on the, on the geological time scale. And yet, you know, we're breathing it without our control. And so there's this flow with the universe where, you know, our bodies shiver when we're cold and we sweat when we're hot. We don't have to think about it because the flow is moving through us. And so it's kind of like um, I have, like to me, nature is the pinnacle and some people could call it God or some orchestrating principle. It really doesn't matter how we define it. But what I work to do is to show that when you, when you really look at nat- natural processes, you start to see that the human journey is not outside of nature. We're not better than, we're not different from, you know? And so when we can like compare, compare ourselves to nature, you, st- you start to really have a more of an appreciation for the things that unfold. Like, for example, um, I have a video channel, Nature is a Guru. And one of the things that I did maybe four or five months ago was it was called the viruses that made us human. So like we could be standing in the middle of coronavirus and feeling like something very destructive is going on. And yet you look and the placenta came from a virus. You know, oh, the, yeah. there's synapses, there's things that happen to us you know, the way that we evolved required viruses because viruses are the only natural entity that can break through cell walls, can break through plant walls, so, you know, human cell walls. And, and so some of some mechanisms, even sexual reproduction is believed to have come from a viral origin. 
And so while we're standing in the middle of coronavirus, we can say, well, if nature kind of, if we've evolved from these virus sort of mutations that allowed, that allowed us to become better, we don't know where, you know, what this whole, you know, thing was, but, but we can trust that nature knows what it's doing. It's been doing it forever, you know? Right, right. And I, I love that too, because it, it shows there have been subtle changes in thinking and the way we go about our business and everything that are a result directly of COVID. And, mm -hmm. and which, yeah, which brings up, an, you know, an interesting thing about dreaming. <laughs> uh, because we, we spend our days going through, you know, moving towards conformity like, you know, giving up our, our authenticity to fit in, you know, we, we join groups because of the ways we're alike, but we really discover how we're different. And, and so like half of our life is spent conforming and then half of our life is spent in a state where that all the walls are torn down. And I feel like the virus, you know, played a big part in getting everybody back to their authenticity because they got to work out, work from home, appreciate family more, uh, maybe, you know, tap into their own little unique way of wearing their socks, you know, or whatever, whatever it is. Does that make sense? Like kind of, I mean, I don't, what kind of things did you see from the virus that were subtle changes? Well, exactly what you're talking about. Like just um, because it seems like we were marching in an inauthentic and kind of synthetic world. Mm -hmm. And I was talking with another girl about this this morning where we weren't honoring the down cycle, you know, right. everything had to be growth, movement, um, more, harder, Ag longer. Aggressive, yeah. not in flow, you know. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And then, you know, bim, bam. And, you know, there are those people that are like, no, this is man-made. And it's just like, no, this is nature responding to, you know, our, our own you know, it could just be a natural part of the cycle of nature and, and it is, it is, yeah. it's, it's exactly right. Like you call it, it's a down cycle. It's the big dream, you know, half of our lives we spend in a down cycle and, you know, the, and, and it's beyond us because aspects of the, of ego and logic are, are suppressed. The body's paralyzed. Everything that we witness in our dreams feels like it's as real as what we experience, you know, and, and there's a lot of really great guidance that comes out of that state. And it's not anything we're aware of. Right. So, so it's kind of like if, you know, if nature sort of it designed us to have this down cycle every day, yeah, maybe it had to look at society as a whole and, and it's done this over and over, you know, I think mm -hmm. we're learning, we're learning a lot. Oh my God, this whole Ukraine thing. I know it's tearing everybody apart, but we're also learning a lot from it. You know, like we can't, we can't just like look over the rim at a group of people and throw them weapons and watch, you know, it, it, we have to do things differently. We've got to get back to peace and it might require, you know, giving up, you know, portions of the East of Ukraine or that, you know, Crimea, which is already, it's like, what, you know, it's like, we just can't be so quick to respond and, and be holding up our way of governing as the best way or only way or, you know, and it's an, a very ugly thing, but somewhere in all that, you know, look at what we're going to do with natural resources. Like, you know, we couldn't get away from our dependence on destructive, non-sustainable energy sources. And 
now we will, you know, every country is going to have to like really explore a better way of providing energy. So it's always looks bad, but that's the piece of nature that I have complete faith in that we are a part of nature. Nature is evolving. It wants to be better and we get pulled into it and we are going to go somewhere better. Right. Well, and I love the fact that you brought up our dependence on, you know, fossil fuels and mm -hmm. unsustainable sources of energy. I live in, in the middle of a bunch of wind farms. Um, mm -hmm. And then not only do we have the wind farms here, then when we drive to my um, in-laws house, there's just, you know, from the time we moved here about 15 years ago to now, they they've massively increased their solar fields as well um and it almost seemed like we had to have some kind of catastrophic push mm -hmm. to make any changes because it was just almost like this it was i mean i was just in america at the beginning of February and just was marveling at how, what percentage of the cars are like Dodge Rams and, you know, yeah, like how really, big they are. Yeah. Yeah. And we over here are, you know, my, my regular car is just a, a tiny hatchback, you know, and, and now we're going to get an electric one and we're moving forward on our solar panels a lot mm -hmm. more quickly. And, you know, we're really, we were going to do this stuff, but this, this uh, geopolitical unrest has really kind of uh, increased the urgency for us. Right. And I don't know if you were around back in the seventies, but this, a similar cycle occurred when there was, uh, you know, a lot of yeah, ru rush to the gas station because we, you know, everyone thought oil was going to be pulled. I think we had like the hostage crisis or mm. it was when Carter was president. And immediately, if you look, all the cars that started to come out of the factories were smaller, you know, and so it's like, you know, every generation just grows up, me, 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 take, take, take. And, and it does take these sort of um, painful uh, experiences to get our priorities straight. Right. I wish that we would, you know, I've, I've just been, there's a part of me that just has been totally, probably naively wishing that human beings were beyond war and, you know, that we oh, could I finally know. be in a place where it's just like, even if somebody were to like go, go off the deep end, so to speak, that, you know, that somehow we would bring it all back together because there, you know, humans are beyond that now. But, you know, like I said, that might be a naive, <laughs> you know. Well, you know, because I'm a Taoist, you know, which is always to respect a balance and, and not to live in any kind of extremes, like judging good and bad and right and wrong. And this is, you know, like, it's kind of, you just sort of stay in a happy medium and don't rush to judgment. You know, you take in all sides of whatever without, um, you know, without having to declare evil and good and all that, it, you can kind of look at the situation with Russia and Ukraine and, and those areas, at, you know, like the way I would describe it is what if in the United States, all of a sudden, all the Latin countries and specifically Mexico started to have, you know, Russian, mili uh, Russian, uh, what do you call it? Uh, guns or whatever you call it, like uh, arc artillery or you know the the whole nato expansion 
threatened Russia and Ukraine was kind of neutral in the middle. And, and I'm not in a million years, I would never justify what is going on, the atrocities of, of what's happening and Russia's doing right now. But, but still there, you know, there could have been more of a respect for a country's insecurities and the United States would have felt it if it was on their borders. So, you know, when you say, you, you know, it seems like we should be past this whole war thing, you know, we should have been listening a long time ago. We should have been more um, reasonable in some of the things that were happening. I don't know if you know, like the history of this whole NATO expansion, but um, so I feel like maybe Russia was backed in a corner and the way the world wouldn't respond with any acquiescence, maybe, you know, so um, it's like, it's, it's, I wouldn't call this kind of an evil thing. I would call it a huge misunderstanding that has horrible, horrible repercussions. And the sooner we get to an understanding of uh, everybody's sense of security needs, I think, I think we'll see that we are a people that can get beyond war. Nobody wants, nobody wants this. Right. Does that even make sense? Do I sound really super unreasonable? But I mean, I don't even know how that comes across because the last thing I would ever condone is what's going on. It's absolutely horrible. But I do feel that there are some things that we didn't kind of, you know, we have to really listen as well as, you know, have our ideas, but also respect other people's needs. And I see it a little bit different than you, (laughs) but, Mm -hmm. you know, um, because like, NATO wasn't actively courting the Ukraine at the moment. Um, well, from the but we but the United States was giving Ukraine weapons to fight Russia. What's the difference? It's the same sort of kind of you know that right? The United States has been funding them militarily right. for, for for a while, and NATO and like I think it was during the Clinton administration that some of those old Russian or Soviet countries just boom, 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 NATO, 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 NATO. And even though uh, Ukraine wasn't going to be, um, it, you know, it still looks like the West is supplying them with weapons. But, but anyway, I mean, I, I'm sure we don't want to <laughs> continue to politic, <laughs> go, go down the political path when we have so much more um, intriguing stuff to talk about. Exactly, exactly. You know, getting back to, because you know, there are some archetypes, you know, because part of me was thinking too, like, you know, just um, working with energy and, you know, the, the, the archetypes, there has been an archetype for war or, you know, that aggressive um, tendency, you know, because I'm thinking of Mars, for example. Exactly. And it's a common energy in human you know, history, we'll mm-hmm. say. Um, so do you feel like that's like a, the sh- a shadow of who we are? Or is it like a shape-shifting kind of? Because It's shape-shifting because I see it as an impregnator. Oh. You know, because it because, you know, the, Mars is Mars and the libido and Aries, the sign and everything that we would associate with that archetype. It not only is aggressive, defensive, proactive, you know, but it's also the impregnator. I mean, that was what I was talking about in that Babylonian astrology, the whole idea of the farm worker plowing in Nana's fertile field. It's a very, Mm. it's very graphic. So you can, you can say that war, you know, can lead to transformation. There's actually an an ancient Chinese saying (laughs) that's kind of interesting because it's, it talks about how 
um, dissatisfaction lives in the North and revolution lives in the South. And they used to meet in the middle of chaos, uh, you know, from time to time. And chaos always, you know, repaid them or gave, you know, was always hospitable. And so they felt like, well, this, you know, what can we do to give chaos, you know, something back? So they thought, well, men all have like ears and eyes and the mouth. And so every day they bored a hole into chaos. And on the seventh day, chaos died. And I know that sounds very Zen and weird or whatever, but the idea is that when you have dissatisfaction, if it's not addressed, it leads to revolution and the chaos that's involved, you know, is part of the chain, you know, the, like we see it when there's a natural disaster in nature, it looks very bad and evil and, you know, but it's really trying to balance out water temperatures or remove blockages or, um, but with this little saying from, from that, this Taoist saying, it's kind of like chaos is without the eyes and ears, the ability to see and hear and communicate and, you know, that, that you can, you know, you'll always have that sort of chaos. I don't know if that, if you even get that. <laughs> well, in, in my interpretation of chaos is a little bit like uh, more unexpected or anything can kind of happen energy. Like it, it's, it's not formulated in the same, you know, it's. But from spread. a physics, yeah, but from a physics standpoint, the universe is, is, in chaos like we're we're called organisms we organize we're organizing the chaos mm -hmm. into something manageable and you know useful and we don't want it to change and we hold on to it but if you look at the flow of life and nature and cycles and it's always you know it's it's some growth structure and then it starts to disintegrate turns into chaos and then growth structure disintegrates so it's sort of a secular cyclical uh, energy that's constantly at play in the natural world, you know, mm -hmm. like in, as an example, if you took a box and just let atoms, you know, kind of move randomly, they're going to go into like chaotic patterns or whatever. Like we see that from a physics standpoint that the universe and, and entropy, like the universe is driven towards entropy. So chaos is not a, um, it's not a negative thing. It's a part yeah. of the transformation and which is like shadows and nightmares, you know, people often write me when they're having a nightmare and I'm like, yay, because a nightmare is the quaking of the psyche breaking free from some sort of hold. Um, some part of them, you know, is, is trying to have a voice or expression or whatever. So, so nightmares can be a positive sign that there's that, that growth is occurring. And so that's where you get your shadow dreams or whatever. And so that's where I would kind of, I get away from it. any, any, identification that this is good or this is bad or this is evil or this is you know shadows are bad or you know what I mean it's kind of like there's a there's there's a rhythm and we can be at different asp you know different places on that cycle and call it bad but then all of a sudden it changes oh it's good oh no no it's bad it's you know we can be like I always say you know become the ma master of your response hover at the doorway of perception you right know, like let it flow because it knows where to go, you know? Right. Well, and, and I like that because it does give a purpose to something that I think so many people and, and because nightmares can be so scary, you know, or yeah. bizarre. Right. And that's, and uh, you know, the fact that they're frightening, like, I feel like the more emotion that comes out of a dream, and the 
more bizarre, the more likely you are to remember it. So mm. those sorts, you know, I would say, you know, 98% of people don't even remember their dreams. And even though everyone dreams nightly, REM, rapid eye movement, is showing that brain activity, the wave that's creating the dreamscape, and we'll dream maybe 20 dreams or however many a night, even though we'll only maybe remember the one prior to waking. The ones that are loudest are the ones that we remember. And, you know, that and nightmares for that reason, you know, we tend to remember that and then maybe try to find out, well, what, why am I having this nightmare? You know, a real good one is the stalker dream. Um, a lot of very, <laughs> a lot of very professional women I've seen over and over in doing dream work with people will have a dream of some stalker trying to break into the house. That's kind of a nightmare. It's a repetitive dream for them. Shadow, you could call it. And, and it's funny because I was with some woman one time at some function and she mentioned it. And I said, were you a black sheep when you were little? And, you know, she just looked at me and, you know, did you have to be a caregiver to your family because your mother was not available? Oh, my God, how do you know that? Because <laughs> I've seen it. I've seen this pattern of a very, you know, uh, nur nurturing woman who had to do everything but had some resentment and so was called a black sheep. And so her mother may have, like, given her an identity that becomes a shadow that's not acceptable. Mm -hmm. And yet she proves herself and becomes super successful, you know, and then she's having these shadow dreams. Well, that shadow is her, that side of her that just wants to be understood, integrated, come in and sleep in its own bed. And the minute that she sees it as that, she stops having the dream and starts to love the self and understand and have forgiveness for mom. Nobody's perfect, you know, but whatever it takes to heal the wound that became repressed, which then becomes the shadow, um, that becomes a nightmare. Does that make sense? Totally. Totally. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's interesting. So how can people like, do you feel like there's um, more wisdom to be found in our regular dreams and not only those really profound or very loud dreams? Well, you know, when I, when I'm doing comprehensive dream work, I do all, all sorts of things. So sometimes I just do like an hour of coaching that might might have one dream involved over a week. Or sometimes people get into serious dream work where I'm getting like 10 dreams a week. Oh, wow. So I, yeah. So, I mean, I've, and I've been doing this for a long time. So I can see patterns and I can see, um, you know, so we're, we're getting something from all of our dreams. But what I do notice is that they're very repetitive. So it's kind of like, you know, well, let's try to symbolize this conflict this way. And, I, and I'm saying as who's ever regulating the psyche's growth is we, how, you know, let's try to symbolize it, it this way. Okay, well, that's not working. Let's try to symbolize it this way. You know, it's, it's kind of like a repetitive, which is why oracles can be so helpful. I mean, mm -hmm. if, we, if we acknowledge that some aspect of the mind knows us better than we know ourselves, when we dream, we're given clues, things that we're not aware of by day that can help us if, if we analyze the dream to understand what's causing the conflict. And, and those bizarre symbols you mentioned are my favorite because the psyche is ingenious. Everybody's got this enormous creativity to take a very complex idea, wrap it in some bizarre, you know, a duck with a hat on or, you know, you, and then you break down, you know, the different aspects of these condensed or homogenized, not homogenized, but um, hybrid, you know, symbols. But, you know, you get kind of the sense that um, if you give the psyche that credibility and approach an oracle 
with the same sort of like, okay, I want to be led, not like, I want to know what is he thinking of me right now? But it's more like, you know what I mean? That same sort of respect and openness and innocence, you can get some of the same guidance. And I see that because when I'm working with people, they'll send me their dream and then they'll send me like an eaching reading or a three card spread or, and it's saying the same thing. It's uncanny, you know? Mm-hmm. Because I just opened, I, I have an Ching book from, you know, 20 years ago, and I just uh, rediscovered it. And I just open it to a random page a lot of times and just see, you know, point my finger, at one of them. And mm-hmm. I'm always amazed at how, like, on point, I'm just like, oh, really, <laughs> like, it just uh-huh. completely represents exactly the message that I want. Exactly. Yeah. And, and one of the things, you know, people ask me all the time when we're talking about dreams, you know, if they're so important, why don't we remember them? You know, it's, it's almost like, a, I guess I would say that a teacher, right? Like teachers don't give you answers. They sort of mm. engage your discovery mechanism or whatever. And, and if, if dreams were so easily accessible, why would we need to be here? Why would we need to have the daily experience? You know, like who knows what it's all about? But, you know, there's, for whatever reason, the dream, you know, is changing. Let's say that there's like a a renovation going on in the subconscious and unconscious or, you know, deeper levels of the psyche that's happening in the dreamscape. And then they start to um, come, come into experiential reality, which is what synchronicity is all about. So, you know, synchronicity is understood to be that sense of, when you have like an, a subjective experience, like some kind of inspired idea, something's going on in the mind, maybe from a dream, and then something plays out in the outer world. It's like, whoa, you know, you get the <laughs> sense of deja vu or well, I was, I dreamt about, you know, a bluebird and there's a bluebird that's sitting in the tree right next to me singing, or he's doing something that makes it seem more interesting than just, you know, just, just dismissing and so there's sort of like this connection between the inner and the outer realm. That's, that's what we know as synchronicity. And so um, when we're working with our dreams and we're, we're beginning to see how our psyche is being represented in all these symbols, you can start to see how we kind of construct reality and the line separating, you know, the inaccessible dream content from what we're doing here starts to dissipate and synchronicity seems to really have an uptick for people that are really paying attention to their dreams. Oh, interesting. Do you feel like that all connects with like the collective consciousness and, and like the. Well, I, I definitely think that there's a collective um, connection that we all share, you know, whether you want to, you know, like you can think from the Buddhist standpoint that we're all one or, you know, all these different manifestations of this thing trying to discover itself or, you know, all the different ways of looking at it. Yes, I see that people will dream of um, archetypes like a uh, like Anubis, um, the jackal headed uh, uh, Egyptian god and, and know nothing about Egyptian mythology you know, but oh, when you start yeah. breaking it down on in their experience, like, in fact, in this particular dream with this gentleman, there was the mummification and, you know, and it really became a story of his inavailability or lack of lack, you know, in, uh, inavailability, unavailability, I guess you'd say it. And 
his, he, you know, not being able to really express himself and achieve intimacy. And so that mummification, you know, you start to see symbolically being wrapped and, you know, not, not kind of available. And, you know, so the story of the dream comes out, but where did that, you know, jackal headed symbol come from? So that is what Jung thought too, Carl Jung, that there is this um, shared reservoir. And, and I feel that way too. Cause like, if I, if somebody was really to say where astrology came from, our knowledge of astrology, and I've been practicing astrology as long as I've been interpreting dreams. My aunt was actually the astrologer to Ronald Reagan, oh, wow. or actually to Nancy Reagan, but you know, did, did Ronald Reagan's chart. And she taught it to me when I was seven or whatever. And, and even though I can see all of these things that happen, like Venus, you know, disappearing below the earth because of the way that she moves gives rise to stories like Persephone abducted the Hades or cuckoo can the snake that goes in the ground and then flies over the sky. That was the planet Venus. So even though you can see a lot of stories coming from the stars, I believe our understanding of astrology actually came to us in dreams that came mm-hmm. to us when our consciousness wasn't so overwhelmed with logic and words and ideas. And, you know, I feel like, in you know, consciousness sort of, from, you know, like the the consciousness of a two-year-old would be akin to what we were like pre-literate, you know, society where we were probably had more access to, to those, to those inspired realms. That would be what you would call the collective unconscious. Interesting. Wow. And I mean, it kind of all ties together and, and, you know, kind of like, if you're taking silly putty and you're pushing it together and you're pulling it apart and pushing it together and you're pulling it apart, because there are these strands that remain, you know, and, and bring in elements of the various cultures and stories and philosophies and, and, experiences and that's where life you know can get really interesting when we stop thinking that we have to know the truth or that we have to you know because it is like like you're describing kind of a facet like it can it can be timeless it can be the beginning it can be the end it can be you know there's all different ways of looking at what's happening but it becomes much more fun when we allow it to really reveal that mystery to us, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we don't, we don't have to like label it as it has to be this linear thing. We live, we die. No, I don't think so. <laughs> right. I think it's more fun to like, I think it's more fun to just go, you know, stand at that threshold of awareness and be that child again and open, you know, access to the right brain, which could lead to more intuitive experiences and, you know, to be more in flow and trusting. Well, I think that's where we're at right now and where we definitely need to like kind of open up to again. Mm -hmm. And we, and I think we are. Yeah. Well, hopefully it stays open because I get a little worried with, you know, uh, book banning and, and, you know, kind of those things where, um, seems as if we're moving forward in this magical realm and in these, um, you know, ways of 
communing with the universe around us. And I just don't want to lose that. <laughs> mm-hmm. But that's, that's sort of like the yin and the yang, right? Like there's the yin might represent sort of the intuitive realm and the, the being receptive and kind or, or, you know, just that flow. Right. And then yang is the aggression and the da, da, da. So at the same time that, it, that anything might be expressing yin, um, yang the fact that yang exists alongside of it, like they, they, they need each other. It's kind of like the force and field of electromagnetism. Like you have to have the force creates the magnetism and then the magnetism pulls the force forward and you have to have them both. You know, does that make sense? Like the force could be seen as yang and the, the field could be seen as yin, but it can't, that light won't travel without that, you know, interaction. And so again, it's like, even to, to, to speak about the part, the part of our culture that is, you know, really getting more into yoga and being much more appreciative of the environment. And, you know, and then you've got this other side of the culture that wants to like, you know, cause war or, you know, you know, wants to ban books or limit people, you know, fake news or I don't know, whatever you want, you know, it's like kind of like they have to, they have to be together. They kind of work together that way. Mm. one one can't really exist without the other because perhaps if if everybody was in this sort of utopian thing it would stagnate right so who knows how it how it but I definitely see yin and yang constantly in all aspects of nature that sort of you know the fields of of weather patterns and you know all these different things that are just interacting Oh yeah, and in 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 a way that one needs the other in order to exist. <laughs> Basically, it's like this two o two two like a duality, but the duality mm-hmm. is actually a necessary thing with one. Exactly, which is why we shouldn't be so quick to rush to judgment that something that's happening is necessarily bad. Right? Maybe the it may be the painful part of the journey towards change or whatever but you know I think I think that's that's the greatest lesson of somebody studying Taoism is to be able to get to a place and I and I think you know in yoga too they talk about getting beyond judgment or it's just not it's not it's an easy idea to conceive of but it's not accessible (laughs) so much in practice (laughs) yeah Yeah. (laughs) but in Taoism I really see people get to that um, to that neutrality and right. lack of, and there's no boundaries. Like I meet a person and they're suffering. Oh, are you in pain? Even though they're yelling at me and telling and saying bad things about me, they're in pain. What can I do? That compassion, right? Like the love the rather than get, picking a fight with them because they're having a bad day and, you know, yelling at me or, you know what I'm saying? Like you just remove those boundaries. We're all in this together. And, you know, take away the boundary between the dream and and the experience what would life look like if they if you acknowledge both as being completely necessary for our growth or the the idea that we're separate from the people that we're meet not really there's some shared you know propitiousness let's say that we come together and learn from each other and kind of just that lack of boundaries can and lack of rushing to judgment can keep us in a neutral space, which is ultimately kind of joyous. 
or at least not in pain, not suffering. And I mean, I, I don't think there's one person on this planet today that that can wake up and read the news without a sense of <gasps> what am I, you know, what, <laughs> what happened now? I mean, it's, it's, it's very frightening, but at the same time, you know, it's got it. It's going to come to some change and, and I doubt that it's going to lead to a nuclear war because that wouldn't make sense to me in terms of how, how we are part of nature's movement towards growth. Well, I'm knocking on wood and keeping my fingers <laughs> crossed <laughs> because we're just way close to that. We're just, uh, I know. I yeah. Know. Yeah. And so, I mean, geo where I'm located is, is would be, yeah. A part yeah. of a interest. Well, yeah. So, um, like, do you think that there's a reason that we forget our dreams? Oh, you just kind of went over that because if, if there wasn't this chasm in between reality, well, okay. but not really, because you bring up kind of a different aspect, right? Because we, if you think about it, everything that we're dreaming, like we're dreaming the parts of our psyche that are repressed. Like a person who's trying to quit smoking will dream of smoking, you know, or oh, yeah. there's like, and so there's things about us that maybe we pushed away. Like, like that example of that woman with the mother that she resented her mother and her mother called her bad. And she, you know, represses something in the psyche or whatever. The fact that, you know, the psyche has repressed all this stuff and then whatever part that's repressing it is sort of like gets open when we dream and all that content gets explored and processed or whatever. You can see it as the left brain versus the right brain. In dreams, we're more in our right brain. It's all symbolic and holistic. And, and so if when we wake up, if we shift back into the left brain again or our everyday ego-driven perspective, it didn't want to know that content that's being explored. It repressed it. It doesn't understand it. it you know, so it takes some work to take the symbols be, you know, kind of slow. So I say when you're, when you wake up, like think of just even one image, cause there's so much repetitiveness going on and then don't analyze it. Just hold it, put it in a word. In fact, like I was by the ocean, you know, and then as you wake up, you write down, I was by the ocean and you're not getting analytical, but then it's like, and, and there was, you know, two deer, that we're on the left side and, you know, the information can, you know, will start to come back. But even if you only remember kind of like a ball, a red ball on the beach, you know, you start to, you can, without analyzing it, write it down and then give it a couple of days. Like what, what part of me is being represented by a red ball on the beach, you know, and little by little, it starts to clarify what it is that's being explored. So, I mean, just to answer your question, why don't we remember our dreams? That's why mostly that we, that the, the side of us that wants to keep everything the same, doesn't like change ego oriented, isn't going to be um, interested in dream content. Mm. Okay. That makes a lot more sense then. And then, yeah, just the, just the fact that you would slow it down and you would only, because it all, always seems like you can, you can only grasp that one little kern anyway mm -hmm. of an, a dream after you wake up. And so to be able to like, do you, um, 
encourage people to keep a dream dictionary next to their bed or not, not a dictionary, but definitely a diary diary you know, sorry. To, to write, to write it down. And, and what I notice is that when people start to work with their dreams, they are, they, be, they dream, well, they say they're dreaming more, but they're remembering their dreams more. It's like once the psyche gets a piece of like, huh, then the next, you know, it seems like they start to remember the dream content more. And, and, you know, then they can go through periods where they don't really remember their dreams. I mean, we seem to remember our dreams more when we're going through major transformations or challenges, you know, then our dreams seem to kind of get louder and we tend to remember them. Yeah, that makes sense because especially when you're going through transformation and change and everything like that, it is going to pull up those really deeply um, hidden sometimes beliefs or or those blockages. Yeah, yeah, bricks in the wall. Yeah, that are exactly that need to be kind of dealt with in order for a person to transform or to move themselves into the next level of their life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's kind of like, you know, and then they'll, you know, they'll, like I said, as, as they start to write them down and give them that sort of respect, you know, then they, they seem to remember more, but if they, even if, even if they don't remember their dreams, and that's why, if you look at my website, Cafe Our Soul, it's um, got a lot of oracles and it's, and the oracles are there. It started as a dream dictionary. In fact, when I was writing about dreams years ago, honestly, a lot of people didn't give them any uh, credibility. I remember talking to a publisher in New York and he was like, your book's about dreams. Oh, you must be from California. (laughs) Like it was, you know, and, and then when I put my dream dictionary into an app, of course, and the younger generation who was the early adopters for apps, you know, it was like in the top 10 at iTunes. So it's the show, and this was back in, you know, 2008 or whatever, but it showed that uh, the younger generation was more um, giving more credibility to, to dreams. And it's kind of interesting to me because I've always felt like it's part, it's half of the puzzle that, (laughs) you know, what, how, how can you not pay attention to your dreams? But Right. And it's kind of interesting too, because you and I have seen the, the progression of this area of symbolism, dream interpretation, tarot, numerology, angels, the Ixing, you know, all of that becoming much more mainstream than it was, you know, 30, 40 years ago. Mm-hmm. And so yeah, and I think people are being able to kind of quiet their mind and have, you know, a little dialogue with themselves. Cause that's really what happens when you go to an Oracle, you know, you get like a, um, you know, okay, what, what can I learn today? And if, if whatever the Oracle reading is, you know, like somebody who's very analytical or very not spiritual, or I don't know what you want to call it, might go, that's just a bunch of nonsense. Well, it doesn't matter. Your reality is your reality or, you know, but for people that are really wanting to expand their sense of um, authenticity or, you know, ability to move more in flow or whatever, you know, the, the Oracle can provide insight into the same blockages that dreams are trying to work through. Mm -hmm. That's a good point. Yeah. And and I know that there are, there's a school that uses 
these tools for like a, a divination and then there's a school that uses them more for uh, introspection and connecting with their higher self and, and with this part of them that's seeking the answers in order to move forward. Mm-hmm. And so, well, which is, which kind of brings up kind of astrology, because if you look at, you know, like I explained, tarot mm-hmm. was more of like a hero's journey and Western archetypes. And the I Ching is more like working with a Zen master. Um, astrology is okay. You can, you, it's almost like the individual rips of fabric of the universe at the moment of birth that, that, that is timeless, you know, then that placement describes the, the natal birth chart, which, be, which can, you know, I read it like a language. It tells me of what their life path is about. And yet you put, you know, the planets keep moving in this backdrop and there you get the transit. So one is introspection. You know, what is my life about? And the other is what's going to happen next week or why, you know, you, like astrology chart can be really great when somebody's experiencing crisis and doesn't understand why it can mm. reveal kind of what this little tri- transformation is all about. And, you know, so that's an oracle that kind of grabs both, you know, the idea that somebody's looking to understand their life path and as somebody who really wants to, to know when's the best time to make a move of house or, you know, like to invest in real estate or because it kind of comes, astrology has both. Right. Oh, that's which I, I guess they all have both, but, but that's kind of a good example of, of using them both in one reading. Oh yeah, totally. Because you have that set, I don't want to say carved in stone, but you have that moment of birth, you know, Mm -hmm. that, that doesn't change or shift or anything like that. And so you have that as the backdrop of the, the personality or, or how the person would interact or what their natural tendencies would be. I Mm -hmm. probably would be the most um, proper way of saying it. And then you have what's going on in the moment and how those to interact mm-hmm. and the chart too just for people who only you know see like every day uh the the you know read what's your sun sign or whatever like you know i can look in a chart and go why do i see you counting in the dark because i see an aspect between saturn and the 12th house and the mars or you know like it tells a story that's so deep you know and they'll go oh my god my father used to make me count count in the corner if I express my emotion or, you know, and that's exactly what the chart was saying, you know? So when I, when I just, when I described kind of what that, you know, birth chart looks like, it isn't just, Oh, you have your sun and Libra, but then you do this way, or you have your moon and Aquarius here. There's the interaction, the angles between those planets and the, you know, the houses that they're in. It's it's like CAT looks like something that meows and CAB is, you know, that yellow thing that takes us for rides in New York, you know, <laughs> or, like, right. you know, you know what I'm saying? Like in C would be like the planet, the aspect is A. And so it's, it, to me, it's like a language. I don't, do, I don't remember. Do you do astrology? I dabble, but I'm not like super deep into it. And that's, I think that's really, in, because, you know, with all of this stuff, the further in you go, the deeper it gets, you mm-hmm. know? <laughs> and, <laughs> and so really discovering those aspects and, and, and how that would affect a person's entire, like you were saying, just seeing, what am I trying the appearance, to say? The parents are spelled yeah. out in the chart. And that's another thing is like the chart can be really great to describe the early life 
so that you can, you know, why did you choose that? How does that, how did those difficulties or challenges relate to really setting you on your own path? You know, or the chart can really describe why we chose our, the parents we chose or the certain, Mm. you know, things that we had in childhood. And, okay, so not to be like, to also add a little different layer of depth when you're working with a person's natal chart and, and with working with them in their life and and advising them, are you also bringing in aspects of the Babylonian astrology as well to that? No, 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 No. because, because just to be clear, there's no real difference in the way a chart's interpreted based on the Babylonian. It's almost like when we were talking earlier about the mother archetype and can go back to like Isis and Mary and, you know, the Virgin or it's, it's the same kind of idea. I mean, by going deep into Babylonian astrology, you get at the root of the archetypes that became the signs. You can understand the planet energy a little bit more because you get, it's just more information, but the actual interpretation of the chart is the same because you know, I mean, that the systems are a little different because they didn't have the same planets that we know of today. But, you know, uh, the Babylonian astrology is more um, to get a deeper, rich, uh, deeper insight into the symbolism that became okay. the archetypes of astrology. Okay. Okay. I think I get it. <laughs> <laughs> so, but, it, and, and yeah, you, I'm all like, wait a second here. I'm going to clap. Okay. So basically then it's, it's this, uh, what would you say? It's not an evolution. It's just the fact that archetypes have been around for a really long time and they've influenced society from 2,500 years ago from more than, more than 2,500, like probably, you know, and again, like, I feel like they must have come to us in our dreams. We, we scraped it on a rock. Like if you look at Gobekli Tepe back to 10,000 years ago, there's three bags at the top of one of the monuments. And there's like the um, scorpion. There's a lot of like things. And you find the same bag on all these statue. They call them the man bag. That's another thing I talk about in my Ah. book. So, and then you see it on a sculpture from, you know, Mayan in, you know, Chichen Itza or whatever, like the little cuckoo can guys carrying a man bag and what's that man bag, you know, and, and that's what I talk about in the book too, because there's a, there's a square in the sky. Well, you have to read the book, but, but, you know, there's these symbolisms that and we're talking 10,000 BC, right. To, for that Ratnagiri, they call it the vulture stone. Um, and but that, you know, I mean, obviously the people that are working on the archaeology aren't, they're calling it a vulture plane with skulls. Well, no, it's not. It's the abyss that, that we know about from Egypt. It's the way the ziggurat and the sun, the rebirth of the sun and Scorpio. And you can see kind of some of the astrological significance. So it kind of, you know, so I guess I would say the evolution of the archetype starts from probably we accessed it in more of an unconscious preliterate phase we drew it, we started to write about it, it got homogenized and changed as it traveled through cultures from Babylonian to Greek to Roman to the England, you know, like, but the root is still there. And, and I believe we access it when we sleep. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the root of human experience and everything that is lived and 
dreamed Insp- about. Inspira- yeah, and, and the inspiration mechanism. Inspire, like, you know, it's whatever that energy of inspiration, you know, that comes from within. Right. Right. And so people can find your books on amazon.com, right? And you're on right. iTunes as well, or, or Apple, you have apps. Yeah. I mean, um, I have apps on iTunes because that's where you get them. You know, I have my music as kind of all over Amazon, I, Apple music, whatever, uh, YouTube. And, uh, you know, all of that you can find on my website too. Okay. And your website is cafe, C-A-F-E. Oh, soul, A-U-S-O-U-L dot com. Right, right. Or, or search Carrie Honey, H-O-H-N-E. Ah, good, good idea <laughs> too. So, mm-hmm. well, I really appreciate you taking the time to meet with me and to share your fascinating information about dreams and symbolism and archetypes and how those things, and also just to give a little perspective about you know, centering in this particular moment in time and and looking for the good that can come of this. So I appreciate that as well. Well, it was really nice to get to know you as well and share our philosophies or. (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah, thank you again. So today we've been talking to Carrie with a K that's K-A-R-I-H-O-H-N-E. And you can find her work at cafeoutsoul.com. This is Sue Ellis Seller from Spiritual Business Spotlight, and we thank you all for your time and your energy and listening to us today. So thank you very much. And um, we'll put Carrie's contact information and her website in the show notes. So you can just click through and get right over to her site and get access to her wonderful information and see about buying her book, Decoding the Night Sky which is about Babylonian astrology. So thank you so much for listening. Take care.